Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today we're talking about leadership. Laura, I wanted to talk about leadership because I feel like we're living through the most catastrophic failure of leadership of certainly my lifetime, arguably of the last hundred years. Depends, I guess, what your subject positioning is, but I think we can all agree that it's pretty catastrophic. I feel like one of the things that the public at large is not grappling with is what the long-term effects of this lack of leadership are going to be like in a whole host of ways. For me, I think it's, it's the fact not that, you know, Biden won and Trump lost, or even that Trump seems to be trying to plan a coup out of the white house in the most haphazard and illegal possible. It's more about the fact that there's a huge portion of the population who wants a fascist leader. And so I'm thinking right now a lot about public fascism and authoritarianism and strongmen and about how half of the country prefers that mode rather than, you know, sharing power. What are your thoughts about that? I I don't quite understand why that kind of leadership appeals. Um, I think there's this sentiment that elitism is bad. And that a lot of leadership for a long time has just been elitist and talking down to normal people. But also, like, Trump's behavior is more like a bully than anything. So it's like, I don't understand where that kind of leadership is appealing. Like, what do you think is behind it? I don't know. I think it's psychological, right? I think that people want authoritarians in charge because then they don't have to make decisions. Um, And I think that it's aspirational because they want to be better authoritarians. So they want to hear, you know, the racist dog whistles and they want to see poor people and people of color abused. And they want to see the disenfranchisement of people that they feel they're forced to compete with in the workplace or in school or or for real estate or whatever. Um, And so I think authoritarianism appeals to the drive to dominate others. And that's like a feature of American public life, not a bug. That's not new. It's not bigger now than it used to be. It has a public face to it that we haven't seen in the same way really since before World War II. I mean, the U.S. was a super publicly fascist place before we entered the war and certainly before the concentration camps were liberated at at the end of the European theater. So this is very reminiscent to me of early 40s US. So I think that this is a continuity. It's not a break. It's not really a change. The flavor of it is different because we have an authoritarian personality, a wannabe thug in the White House. But also, I mean, I think a lot of the smart critiques are suggestive of how much worse it would be if he he had any skills at it, instead of just being like a D-list celebrity mobster. But it's all mafia capitalism, right? It's like crony capitalism in the worst way. And I think that there's part of that populism of like the family that appeals to white nationalists, because that's the entire basis of their eugenics philosophy of why white supremacy is good, is that their white family is better than, you know, anybody else, regardless of what the actual, you know, characteristics of their family are. And so I feel like the mafia capitalism is extractive, right? Like these these kind of D-list mobsters just want to frack out all the cash that they can. And I think in the in the media, they're calling it grift, which I hate. I think that that's a really shitty misnomer because it should be theft. Theft should be the frame. And instead, they want to be precise about the way that they're skimming money out of all of these different governmental spaces. But it really should be theft because they're re 
you know, reapportioning public funds for their family, which is, which is the definition of theft, right? It's also nepotism and it's also corruption in a bunch of other legal ways, but it's not grift. I, that's not the way that I think we should frame, we should frame it as theft. We talked a little bit in the election episode about messaging. And I also think that this movement, it has been good at rhetorical strategies like scapegoating yes white supremacy is built on scapegoating yeah and so they have been able to craft talking points that people are able to cling to and get behind and even if they're like evil at heart and even if they hide like what the actual intention is which is theft you know they ask for fealty almost you know like you can't stray from these talking points and they're getting more and more extreme. And it's almost like an exercise in testing. Like are people going to stay with us um, for the potential payoff of like unlimited power and and influence or, you know, are we going to be able to step back and like move away from like regressive leadership like that? I don't, yeah, I mean, I think that the GOP, as as it is a cult of charismatic leadership around Trump, has a definite theory of power, okay? And I think that that's the problem with liberalism as a whole, right? Whether it's like the leadership of mid-management, like say at my university, there is no theory of power. But Trump has a theory of power. It's it's authoritarian. It is. I am the charismatic leader. You will do what I say. I'm going to characterize all of my enemies as as uh, in need of destruction. That feeds into all of our popular culture representations of masculinity, all of our certainly evangelical white masculinity and its notions of heroism and sacrifice and dominance. I mean, he is producing an embodiment of white nationalist power that appeals to people who don't have access to political power. And to people who just want to, you know, frack all the money out of public welfare and public services and social good and privatize it. And so that private privatization as a whole, whether it's privatizing public education or privatizing health care or whatever, is the what's driving the people into his authoritarian cult because they are receptive to that theory of power, right? They think that all power is zero sum, that sharing is bad, that collective cooperation is shitty and undermines their worldview and is anti-Christian and that women shouldn't have social power and that black people are bad and we should continue to just colonize native stuff. They just, that's who they are. It's not like he taught them that. He did not teach them that. That preexisted him. It is the foundation of American public life. It's written into our founding documents and he's animating it in a way that we just have not seen before because he's a carnival barker. And my colleague, Jen Marchia is at Texas A&M. She writes about demagoguery and compares him, I think rightly so, to P.T. Barnum as a carnival barker. And when I think of him, I think of him as like, you know, the emperor who has no clothes. He's a bullshitter. 
He's yeah. the biggest bullshitter that's ever bullshitted. And people love that stuff because they want to be flattered. They want a scapegoat. They don't want any accountability. And they want to redistribute wealth to authoritarians because they think they'll get taken care of if they're loyal. And so that that leadership model, I think it's interesting, not just because it's in the White House, right? Because I think fetishizing the presidency is a mistake because we then don't look and see how that model is replicated in all of these other mundane aspects of our life. But it's definitely in the workplace, every workplace in America has elements of this kind of authoritarian leadership structure that's built on scapegoating and fracking and mafia capitalism and and things like that. And I think what we need to think about is, you know, how do we manage insecure leaders? I also think it's convenient. It's easier for people to think of like leaders um, in this way where they have like some singular ability to lead, like because of their charisma like they're uniquely qualified, like, and it's a good story, right? Like people want to believe it about themselves. So they believe it about other people that you can be a self-made man. And here's how this person did it. We really do have a problem with cults of personality. When we think about leaders, we like to think Steve Jobs was a visionary, but like Apple's success was probably a lot more complicated than that. How many middle managers at Apple made the difference And like how much of it was about luck and like good timing. Uh, And I just think like across the board, we attribute too much success to the CEO. And we do this for Trump too, like um, attributing the good economy to Trump. And like, we know that the economy actually wasn't good. Uh, An economy is not good if 75% of people are living paycheck to paycheck. It was really just the stock market that was good. And even that had little to do with Trump, but he gets to hang his hat on it. So I just think we like do not handle thinking about leadership with nuance at all. I will say that the exceptionalism is toxic. And it's that is a fundamental part of America's frame about itself. We're exceptionally good. We're exceptionally smart. We're exceptionally modern, like whatever, all of that stuff builds Trump. But I also think that he exercises power. So when his, you know, when his base is like, here are all the ways that we want to operationalize evangelical capitalism in Washington, here are all of our enemies and how we want to excise them from the military or excise them from, you know, our immigration policy, or here's, here's how we want to undermine their efficacy in public schools. He exercises power to accomplish the thing that they want, right? Whereas among the liberals, there's so many of them that are just pleasers that just don't want to upset the apple cart. In some ways, we're in this crisis of leadership because they just don't want to piss people off because they're weak. And so that weakness, which is actually a weakness, then helps funnel all of this support for the strong men, even though they're cons, even though they're mafia, even though they're like D-list celebrities and just trash humans who only exist in this public way because of generational wealth, the weakness of liberals to actually have any kind of ethical agenda is what is producing the strong men as a counterbalance to their weakness. So whether it's the middle management pleasers who don't want to upset the apple cart and and articulate any kind of ethical norms in the workplace, say, or whether it's, you know, Congress or somebody like Nancy Pelosi who hasn't sat for a public debate of any challenger to her seat for the entire time that she's been in office, all of that undermines the possibility to create more space for you know, debate and discussion and moving the country forward in a, in a progressive way 
I think that is not just reproducing shitty white people. And so, you know, I think that Democrats are antagonistic to ethics. That's their beef with Bernie is because he constantly turns the conversation towards the ethical consumption and wealth, you know, extraction and the one percenters and wealth hoarding and redistribution. And if you're not going to center that, you're never, ever going to capture back the people who are fucking disgruntled at being poor and cut out of the political realm. And they're going to continue to capture the imagination because they're exercising the power that they've been asked to do, where the Democrats just want to live in this world of nuance where they don't actually have to participate in the same kind of ethical space. And no, I don't think that that's a false equivalency at all. Somebody, I will wait when somebody can explain to me what the Obama administration's ethical orientation towards power was. I'll wait. He didn't have one. It's not even like blaming the victim. It's co-constituted. There is no world where Trump is a product of just the Republican Party. And so all this coverage about the GOP made this monster, it's like they did not do it in a vacuum. That is a shitty analysis. And it's hard to think about Biden taking office next year, especially considering the legacy of the Obama administration and think that very much is going to change. The thing on the back end is going to be worse, actually. I mean, the way that the authoritarianism will expand under Biden, I think nobody is talking about it because they don't want to poison the well, but the well is already poisoned. So I feel like, you know, quote unquote, good liberals who are like, oh, thank God Biden won, have absolutely no idea about how fascism is going to grow. Because they're just like, la, 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 my guy won. Because they don't realize that they're playing the same nativist game that the GOP is. But the GOP has a long game and the Democrats are just like, I just hope we win this election. They won because they ran against a, a slightly foolish dude. Who had a terrible campaign. If he had been even slightly competent, they would have gotten creamed. They're way more competent members of the GOP than Trump. And so I just, that reckoning is coming. And I hate to be like the henny penny, you know, pessimist, but I have, I have no idea what liberals are going to, I think they're just going to rest on their laurels. They're going to get their vaccines for the COVID and they're just going to, I don't know, wait out Biden's own single term. And what do they think is going to happen? I have no idea. It's it's such a fantasy scape. I mean, I, I like that you brought up Bernie as an example, because I think that the progressive arm of the Democratic Party does have leaders and like creating a document like the Green New Deal, like that is leadership. That is a great stance and not trying to please every part of the party. And like how disappointing it is to hear Obama talk about like not alienating centrist voters by saying things like defund the police. Like you can't worry about how every voter is going to react. And a ton of centrist voters aren't going to vote Republican because they are evil. They're not going to go that way. So you can still capture a lot of voters and like lead the party in a new direction. I mean, listen, the thing about it is social movements don't give a shit about votes. They're about trying to fix problems. So they are about trying to create an entirely new consciousness. So the problems do not repeat in the same way and fashion. That is not the same as getting people elected. 
social movements exist outside of contemporary, like, you know, social policymaking. They are outside of that. They, they exist because the people who are participating in the social movements have already been cut out of the political process. So there's no, there's no social movement that's ever going to take its cue from the president, ever. That They don't exist in the same world. The whole point is to oppose the status quo. So, no, I, it's, and I, it's not even disappointing to hear Obama say it. That's who he is. There's nothing about Obama that is progressive. There's nothing about his administration. The biggest achievement was passing the Affordable Care Act, which was called Romney Care. Is anybody, I mean, I just, there's nothing about him that's progressive. He's not progressive on race. He's not progressive on power. He's not progressive on foreign policy. He's not, I mean, he was a centrist and that's real generous. He reproduced the most grotesque parts of 60s liberalism so that white people would not have a sad about voting for a biracial dude. But th that is an identity politics thing and not a political economy thing. He sucks on political economy. And honestly, he put together uh, an administration full of Chicago thugs, which is why all the liberals have a sad about Rahm Emanuel even being talked about as a potential cabinet level appointee. So I, they talk out one side of their mouth like, fuck Rahm Emanuel, he's bad, and then somehow want to pretend that that Obama wasn't steeped in Southside Chicago politics that are all mobbed up anyway. Like I don't, there's no outside of that. So the romanticizing of the democratic candidate, I just find maddening because they can't overcome their own short-sightedness about their politics, which are fundamentally a sign of moral weakness. So they don't have an ethical grounding and they're not producing ethical public policy and they don't have comprehensive ideas about who they are as a party. That is all manufactured. That's a self-inflicted wound. And at the at the micro level, they're not producing care or creative labor. They're not ameliorating long term problems as a result of, you know, trashy capitalistic, you know, wealth hoarding. They're not doing those things. And so, you know, the other thing about that is that they rely on media accounts uh, that come from newsrooms full of people who went to Harvard and who are from wealthy families who have no idea what happens in rural states, which is where the majority of the Trump voters live because of gerrymandering and districting. So I, so the fantasy of the Trump voter is also animating the Trump voter. And that's a product of the liberal imaginary. That is Democrats not knowing fuck all about what happens in the middle of America, which they have never done well, but they won't overcome it either. Because they don't want to come here and like see how it happens. So they'd rather have the fantasy about the backwoods rural Americans and how they're all these simplistic Trump voters than have any real reckoning with how their own public policies have totally failed the people that they wish they were courting inside of their party. I don't, it's just, it's willful ignorance. A huge reason why voters have been defecting, especially white male voters, white voters at all have been defecting from the Democratic Party is because of that. They know that the entire project has just been to maintain the status quo and they don't like being talked down to. Right. In the wise words of prophetess Janet Jackson, what have you done for me lately? And at least Trump's strongman bit makes them laugh and feel good. I mean, the GOP has all of the playful space in politics right now because the Democrats are sad, shitty losers because their lady chick didn't win. And so all they did was bitch and moan for four years about sad, sad, sad second wave feminism things instead of building out new ideas. And I say that as a whole. Right. Obviously, there are certainly the squad is challenging that. And I mean, even Bernie has his problems. But at the end of the day, he's introduced 
introducing new frameworks for understanding a moral perspective on wealth that is desperately needed in this country. You can I do not want to hear any more white liberals try and tell me about diversity when they're like, oh, no, nah, you know, I voted for Hillary. You know, I, I really support diversity and I voted for Hillary. I'm sorry. What? What? Please explain to me your theory of power. And I would like you to discuss its relationship to capital. Because if you don't think that she and Bill didn't make shitloads of money off of allowing pharmaceutical ads to play on TV in a way that undercuts your actual access to healthcare, you're out of your fucking mind. You're out of your mind. They made all their money off of pharmaceuticals in the same way that the Bushes made theirs off of oil, et cetera, et cetera. It's not like they're good people. They're just the people that you have that are sociopathic enough to want to run an entire country that's as fucked up as this. So attribute, it's like a false attribution error, right? That because she studied good at school and knows people who do politics that somehow she's a good leader. And I think that that, that trickles down into the, you know, middle level management. Cause it's like, Oh, just cause you know, people, you're going to be a good leader. Or you grew up in a place where you knew this thing or your family did the thing that you do. You're going to be a great leader. Um, reader, there is no relationship between proximity to power and ability to wield it ethically. No relationship whatsoever. So like returning to the squad, I think they have exhibited leadership for the Democrats. Agree. Um, and I wonder in general, if you think that women make better leaders. No. Women have had less access to leadership, but there's nothing like biologically essentialist about vagina people, right? Having leadership skills in a different way. I think that there are some arguments made to be made about standpoint and the way that it potentially can change our ideas of power, right? So like even in the reporting on say um, possible coups coming out of the White House, I'm really interested in writers who live in countries that have successive coups that happen over time and thinking about their knowledge about coups in democratically elected countries. That's useful, right? Because that's firsthand empirical data. And those are scholars who study coups in a bunch of different spaces across time. But there's nothing essentially different about white, especially white women as leaders than white men. I mean, I just think we live in Arkansas and it's white women that stopped the desegregation of Little Rock Central High. They formed all these white lady committees and shut down the schools and pressured the Democratic Party to kill desegregation and it killed it in the entire in the entire U.S. South. So no, I do not think that there's anything at all essentially better about quote unquote women leaders than male leaders. I think that women have just been cut out of the process. I think given the opportunity, they would hoard power in the same way. What other options do they have? They're not getting socialized into, you know, care culture or, you know, a a different sense of capitalism. They're not doing socialism on their own at all. And you know that because the biggest beneficiaries of affirmative action were white women. And what have they done? I'll wait. Right. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, great on abortion, refused to hire black law clerks. You cannot. That is not exceptional. That is the fucking rule. Like, I think reproductive justice is really important, but also she didn't want to work with black people. So that is how certainly we should understand white ladies. They want to they want to maintain the racial hierarchies 
as much as possible. And, you know, we had that episode where we trashed Ivanka Trump, which in hindsight was obviously prescient and we're the best, but she's going to run for office in Florida. And she's a total stone cold sociopath. (laughs) She's going to be worse than her dad. I think you get the wrong kind of people attracted to positions of leadership, like male or female or any orientation. You get people who are ego driven. And you see that with Trump. He cares more about being the one in charge, right, than the country's success, I think. Um, And you see a lot of middle managers doing that. They, like, care more about being right or being the one making the decision than, like, the team or the company's success. Yes, they are broken people. Yeah. And they also just don't care about the truth either. Like, they just care about what's convenient for them. And people just, like, say shit that they think a leader should say. You know, they follow all of the cues from the past, which, you know, has led us here. It's funny because I feel like, you know, white ladies in particular are egregious about it because on the one hand, they're all like, yes, queen, say no. And then they're also like, I'm going to shame the shit out of you if you don't overwork because I'm going to reproduce a bunch of gendered norms about labor in the workplace. And I'm going to punish you because it is um, not collaborative. It is competitive always and often. And I feel like some of the worst bosses I've ever had are white ladies who would call themselves quote unquote feminists, but who are really insecure leaders and pleasers who can't manage even low level conflict, right? All conflict feels like trauma for a whole host of reasons. I'm, I'm, these are structural things, right? I'm not, they're not personal, they're structural. But I think that they're some of the worst bosses I've ever had in my life. Okay, they can't do care, they can't do joy, they can't do collaboration, and they can't manage low-level conflict that requires them to check their privilege. So, uh, you know, in some ways, I think the, that the backlash against Hillary Clinton was an unacknowledged backlash against, you know, the white ladies who were socially promoted because of affirmative action that actually didn't have the skills either to lead, right? But because they hadn't been trained and they hadn't been mentored and they had no theory of power whatsoever that was collaborative and that rewarded people who were producing creative labor, then they fell into these really atavistic, uh, you know, competitive, shitty frameworks that really undermined the efficacy of the country. And I think that that's why, you know, think about Klobuchar. Like, I don't know her personally, but I know a lot of people who've worked for her who fucking hated working for her for the same reasons. Petty, you know, pleasery stuff, you know, wanting to be the number one, unchecked ego things. It's like, you know, indifference is better than that as a leadership style. That avoidance and that pleasing, like, that is actually a lot worse than it sounds like those kinds of leaders end up just not listening and not taking feedback and like inventing ways to make it seem like that they're doing a good job, like putting themselves in positions where they don't have to hear that they're doing a bad job, avoiding collaboration because it points out the gaps in their knowledge. And so it just ends up being really bad for collaboration period. Well, it turns into micromanaging, which is really just reproducing anxiety as femininity, which is so unhelpful in creating collaborative workspaces where people can manage labor politics. So I really think that in some, in a lot of ways, you know, white women 
are the most efficient reproducers of authoritarian politics in the workplace. I think that they are, that's why they are the centerpiece of, you know, uh, Christianity and Christian uh, teaching, especially as it's like Sunday school related. And that's why they control public education, which is totally fascist, even though it's a necessary evil that needs to be, you know, challenged and revisioned. And I think that once they get into real political leadership heading the United States for it, it's like Thatcherism is exactly what the white lady achievement culture produces. Klobuchar is like that. Hillary Clinton is like that. That is who the second wave feminists molded to talk about equality on one side of their Janus face and then produce authoritarian politics on the other that lacked any kind of class or race analysis. So I think that the white ladies are the most efficient reproducers of uh, shitty hierarchies possible in the country. It's hard for me to even like come up with a concept of good leadership under capitalism. How is it even possible to have good leadership when so many people are under the thumb of capital? This is why I think the idea of leadership studies is like as, as a sort of fake social science is completely laughable. Yeah, it's, it's hard because so many people like don't have so many arguments on the right are about our fundamental rights and freedoms. But it's like, how much freedom do you really enjoy, especially when most of your working hours are devoted? Like how much freedom do most people have at their workplace, really, to say what they right. think? And we're defending that for you to go and spend most of your waking hours like under working under like leaders who aren't really accountable to you or to anyone else really i mean the thing is is that middle management is a fantasy of power and then you know uh and then the people who own things are really where the buck stops and have all the power so even though there's power to sabotage in the middle management there's not really power to produce you're only reproducing whatever power exists you know already right which is all the nefarious shit of capital so middle managers i think are really interesting in the ways that they want to pretend like they have influence or capital or the power to make decisions. I mean, higher ed is very interesting because the people who chair the departments can't hire or fire. They're budget managers at best. They can ma- they can motivate and demotivate like micro labor, but they don't have any power. They don't message. They don't there's no vision work to be done. It's a fantasy completely in total. And I'm not saying that they're not necessary, but I think the ones who are the most ethical take serious their ability to hone and shape the department's will in ways that are ethical. But that's that's the, the sum total. So in higher ed, I think that's reflected certainly in this Fortune 1 landscape that we also live in with people who are like at the vice president tier of Walmart or whatever, who are also producing fantasies of their own importance to the company. So in some ways, those those mid-level managers are are doing the aspirational politics of Trumpism. Yeah, I wish I had more power. I wish I could exercise it against these people that I feel competitive with. I wish I could take these resources away from these people. These people don't deserve things. These people should be punished. Like all of that shit is the detritus of Trumpism. And it's everywhere in liberal 
culture. It's not like those people who are quote unquote good Democrats who voted for Biden don't also have these aspirational fantasies where they want to extract power and punish people that make them sad. And I don't mean that in a, you know, you know, inclusion, diversity, equity, access way. I mean that in a petty white person way, because it's all it's all white people that have that station. So all they're doing is replicating racism and, you know, trashy class politics. That's what they're doing. They're not inventing new ways of being. They're not creating communities of care. They're just being petty as fuck. And so they can't see other theories of power that are more egalitarian and that produce justice because justice isn't even a framework that they engage even at a local level, let alone at a larger theoretical level, philosophical level. You know, they can't, they can't think that way. They're not taught to think that way. They're not encouraged to do it. Yeah. And justice requires collaboration. So (laughs) in the way that we have like created a framework for leadership, um, it requires accountability, Laura, you have to be able to hear that you're full of shit. Yep. To do justice work because people are going to tell you you're full of shit and you have to be able to do that without crying at work. And that's what, that's what I'm telling you about white lady bosses is that they can't hear that they're full of shit. Or that they're evil, even though they are. They cannot hear it. And nobody tells them because white ladies get a pass because they're little virginal people and they're infantilized and they're coddled, right? And they are not seen as these nefarious political forces, even though they do heinous, heinous shit. I mean, even though most leaders are terrible, I still think leadership is important because like in its absence, like when you have like flat structures or like, grassroots activism um, or like, you know, communities that are kind of not structured. They're like loosely organized that um, a lot of built in prejudices like end up winning out. Like whoever's loudest gets to like drive the decision-making and like our innate biases end up driving like who ends up having unofficial leverage in those situations so I do think like structure is important in what ways can we create that structure and not have it be like soulless anti-collaborative and shitty well you know listen you know we talk all the time about play and we talk all the time about care and we take all and we talk all the time about risk and shitty leaders don't play and they don't produce care and they don't take serious risks because they can't manage the sad, you know, ego um, disappointments of being, you know, questioned about their motives because they're weak because they are ethically weak and they have no theory of power. And I think if we're going to talk seriously about what leadership might look like, we obviously have to talk about how capitalism constrains that. And then we also have to think about what kind of values we want to socially reproduce through leaders. And for me, that's obviously play, risk, care, and cash. We want to redistribute money so that people don't have to beg for GoFundMes to pay for their fucking COVID relief. I mean, I just, who wants to live this way? Fascists do, and they prefer the strong man, even if the strong man is a white chick who has a dem, dem, D after their name. That's who they want. 
to tell them what to do so they can go on autopilot and ignore all the hard philosophical questions of being human and reproduce the wealth of their family so their kids don't have to work very hard. And they want to be secure in their gated you know, communities so they don't ever, ever have to encounter anybody who might produce accountability about their shitty politics. So, you know, I think you're 100% right that there has to be a real serious conversation about how capitalism produces shitty leaders. And I certainly want that to include white ladies. And um, and I think we need to have a better conceptualization of how theories of power create opportunities for collaboration instead of just hyper competitive punishment. Yeah, I think I think I also want to talk about how that has played out like with our leadership in the coronavirus. So like leadership. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) We're not going to buy more Moderna or more Pfizer vaccines because the president is had invested his money in Moderna. I mean, it's just so craven. No leadership. It's also just like an inability to change. Like it's again, perpetuating the status quo. Again, it's prioritizing comfort, uh, like eschewing accountability. It's not being creative or listening. This is unprecedented. Like there aren't cues for what you can, what to do, right? But there has been no creative thought or no work to like produce new ways to lead. I don't see any change in how leaders are handling this, honestly. No. Other than being like, I'm letting my workers work remote. How generous of me. They should perform extreme gratitude that I'm letting them not expose themselves to a deadly virus at work. But also that's only the middle class. Two things. Well, at least two things. One is that Trump's refusal to buy more Pfizer vaccine because he's invested in Moderna is a Clinton thing. They were they their money is in pharmaceuticals and deregulating the pharmaceutical industry. And so that is that he didn't invent that. Okay, that would have happened under a Democratic president, too. Uh, Two, we can think about this as America's completely and totally failed foreign policy, which nobody's thought creatively about ever, like certainly since the Cold War began. And so now it's just here in the United States. I guess third, I would say, is that the racial disparities we're seeing in both access to health care generally, but also in the mortality rates is a continuation of America's hoarding of resources in white communities and prioritizing their health over everybody else as a backdoor eugenics politics. And third, I think that uh, because we don't give a shit about ethics, then we can't really talk about science in ways that are socially responsible because we don't want to talk about where the money comes from to fund the health insurance lobby. (laughs) I mean, or anything else. Right. So if we can't talk about ethics then we can't really talk about science and then Democrats get sad that people don't understand vaccines. I mean, that is also a self-inflicted wound. Where the fuck have you been? We have t- we're at the K through ed- 12 education is just teaching to the test. So the kids can't think about the relationship between the humanities and the sciences. And instead, the social sciences fill their head with Marianne Williamson mumbo jumbo bullshit that does that mystifies what happens when you get a vaccine. And I just, it is so fucking self-inflicted. And so the white people have produced all this social science research that explains nothing and that mystifies everything so that we can't get from ethics to science in any real manner. I mean, I, it, 
it is so it, in some ways so big and other ways so legible to me how we got where we are and it's hard for me to see any I don't I'm not optimistic like I'm very pessimistic like I don't think there's a reckoning coming and I see us careening off the cliff <laughs> oh yeah I mean, I th- like I said, I mean, I know I started, I did not slow play at the beginning of the episode, but it the authoritarianism that comes on the back end of a Biden administration, regardless of what happens inside of it, is going to be so much bigger than what happened when Trump, because once he's out of power, the cult of personality is going only going to amplify and there's going to be no buffer between him and the people because the state will have been removed. So Oh, it's going to get way worse before it gets better. Now, on the other hand, he's old. Okay, so that's a good thing. But these the people who love the authoritarians do love the men who live to be like Palpatine's age, like 7,000 years old. You know, they're like <laughs> cryogenically frozen like Farrakhan. So, you know, I um, I just don't, I think these people have absolutely, not, I think that they're just like, oh, and then we'll get the vaccine and then utopia happens because Biden won. And it's like, even the ones who are critical can't even let themselves think about the larger work, which is really about how do you transform white supremacists away from nationalism and just fucking craving racism. You know, I said this in one of the other episodes, like where are the white Stacey Abrams is white people don't want to do the work of transforming other white people. They would rather save black people or whatever and reproduce colonialism rather than transform their own families and social structures and workplaces. And this is where the ethics break down in the workplace, in the church and public education. And the linchpin to that is white ladies. So, you know, it's a, I think for, you know, we have a feminist podcast, which is, I think, um, a useful space for us as white chicks to occupy. But on the whole, I think the people who consider themselves feminists are not doing the work of consciousness raising about structures of capital and ways that they have to. And they would rather avoid their own family and become white saviors than do the work of transforming the very spaces that give them the power that they have. So, you know, they are also the pleasers. And so they don't want to piss people off or make people sad or make their ego sad. So they don't want to do the work of producing accountability in their own families and churches and schools and workplaces. And so what that avoidance of accountability is 100% white supremacy. There is no separation between one and the other in my mind.